1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: All right, Shiloh, hey, it's good to be back. had a great trip, and I just got finished listening today. To well, I might not have finished the second one, but the second one was short that you did with Christopher, shorter than normal, <laughs> under an hour. Which I was so impressed by. I was like, "Wow, you guys got it under an hour!" But I finished listening to to those and to try to get myself a little bit up to speed here, and uh, it was great, man. I I really was impressed with the analysis you guys were able to do and and some of the the things you're able to see in in the scriptures there. So yeah, great. Thanks for. Thanks for getting Christopher into that. Thanks, Christopher.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you, Christopher. I mean, he's dev—he's filled in for us because he filled in for me for two weeks as I was getting through with with finals and finishing out my school semester, and then he filled in for you for two weeks. while <laughs> well, we got through, and you were on uh, a trip, man. You went to Palmyra and everything, so you have some uh, some church history stories and some visitation, uh, some visitation experiences to be able to pack a new visitation bed. experiences. <laughs> Is that is Not that a good way of saying like that, that? right? <laughs> Did you have any visions? Yeah, um,
0: I'd never I'd never been to those church history sites. So the easternmost I'd ever been is is Nauvoo. I've been to Nauvoo half a dozen times. Um, I love it, but I'd never been to Kirtland or Palmyra. You know any of that stuff? So we as a family we got to go there. We got to go to Palmyra, and then we we also dropped in at Kirtland, walked around the temple there. But you know all the visitor center stuff is closed, so we could. We were only able to go to the sites themselves and, and see stuff, but we were like the only ones there at, at almost anything. Um, it was really nice. Weather it was peaceful. So it was a good experience.
1: That's yeah, awesome. Really I that. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I went up to Nauvoo when I was a teenager because I, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I remember going up once to Nauvoo and I, I haven't been back. I, you know, I, I want to go back there, but yeah, our family went out for the first time out to, to Kirtland and, and Palmyra. Oh, about two years ago, almost two years ago now. It really is. Those are some really spectacular places, especially there in Kirtland as we're talking. And for, for me, I was able to go there when things were open. Um, so, so we were a little bit fortunate, but we had kind of the same experience that nobody was there. And the sister missionaries were kind enough that as we went into the Newell K. Whitney house upstairs into the room where the School of the Prophets was, and my great, great, great grandfather, great, great, great grandfather? And uh, there might be an extra great in there. I'm not sure. <laughs> but his name is Graham Coltrane and he was Zebedee Coltrane's brother and Zebedee Coltrane's and you know, he's a, a prominent figure in, in church histories in the DNC. So my great, 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 maybe great uncle, <laughs> but at any rate, Graham Coltrane was in, was in the school of the prophets and, and they both recorded the story of, of being in there when, when the Godhead came through when Elohim and, and Jehovah came through. And, and so we got to spend some time there as a family just by ourselves and, and kind of sit in the room and the sister mercenaries let us be there for a minute. It was a special experience. But uh it really is. It's a it's a really great place to be. And just being there on the outer the outer lawn there of the Kirtland Temple is is awesome.
0: Yeah, it was really nice. They had um some really nice rhododendrons, I think they were that they were taking care of there in the in the area. But but yeah, it was it was interesting. Like I don't know what I necessarily imagined, what I'd seen from the pictures. It's always different from the pictures, right? It's just never exactly like the pictures. Um, (laughs) It's just a different experience. But it is a little hard to kind of sometimes wrap your mind around, okay, this is the actual place and the actual stones and the actual building that that they built and had the experience as well. Because you hear these stories you know, your whole life and then then to finally get to actually see something literally concrete, right, is – it's just interesting it's a it's it's a unique experience so yeah
1: when you when you get to actually experience the concrete history when we went in there um into the eb grandin press i remember c- because they say that the floor is original still right and my oldest daughter liberty you know she looked at the floor and then she's like no i don't believe it and i'm like what what <laughs> do, what? don't you believe sweetheart and she's like this this floor it can't be that old and <laughs> <laughs> and i remember thinking oh, okay yeah it is because just that idea of experiencing the old and of recognizing that this has been around for a very long time and all the stories we hear about when you come into contact physical contact with it it becomes yeah. a completely different experience so yeah
0: you know our our american conception of old though is so quaint you know it's so funny because <laughs> i it's cute. i was yeah I, i've been listening to these these lectures on the history of ancient egypt and this is a culture like a a culture that persisted for over 3,000 years this fairly consistent culture religion there's really nothing that we know of in the history of the world that's been quite persistent like that and and so their concept of old is much different from like an American concept of old right and, <laughs> you know, thinking just in, in in ancient terms yeah, yeah so uh, let's jump in and and start talking about section 63 today so, so section 63 uh, this is the only section in the reading for this week. And you know as I was reading through this section like I kind of felt it was a little a little bumpy like kind of a roller coaster kind of up and down and and it was hard to like grasp a real consistent idea of of the um, sort of the attitude, I guess you might say or the mood of God in this section. Um, it seems <laughs> to to be kind of up and down. But then I, I, so I listened to it a couple times and then I read through it and I went back and was rereading the, the section heading. As sometimes it does with these sections, you know, a lot of times I'll read through these and they're really puzzling. There's a lot of parts that I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't know what that means or where that comes from or how does that fit into everything. And then, um, often when I go back and read the section heading, something in the context kind of clicks for me. And, um, so here in the section heading, we have some words from Joseph Smith and he's describing, the basically, uh, the circumstances that brought about this revelation, you know, essentially the question, right? So he says here, in these infant days of the church, there was a great anxiety to obtain the word of the Lord upon every subject that in any way concerned our salvation. So, so the keys for me there were, were these phrases great anxiety and every subject. Back in section 58, verse 26, I think it is, we get this uh, pretty well-known phrase that's repeated often in the church here. For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant, wherefore he receiveth no reward. That's kind of what came to mind when I read this this, uh, phrase here that they had great anxiety to obtain the word of the lord upon every subject and it seems like you know the saints here are are just seeking for uh, every particular that they can get in everything and and obviously in in one sense that's that's a really good that's a, like that's a virtue right seeking this knowledge but but then we read a little further and we get some more context as to what really they're after here it says upon every subject that in any way concerned our salvation. Now, salvation seems like, oh, okay, great. You know, they're, they're concerned with the eternal welfare of their souls, right? This is, this is a, a kingdom of God type of concern. But it says here, And as the land of Zion was now the most important temporal object in view, I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints and the purchase of the land and other matters. So it's interesting. It turns from this topic of salvation into a a discussion of land and and even identifies this as this land of Zion as being the most important temporal object in view, okay? Not, Not spiritual, right? Not kingdom of God in terms of gathering of the saints and purifying them And, you know, preparing them to uh, receive covenants, things like that. No, it's a temporal object in view of the land. How are we going to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? What's it going to look like? What's the economy going to be like? All of these temporal matters. And that just, that was fascinating to me because it really kind of does a good job of, of couching what then happens in this section here because the Lord Ask and you shall receive, right? The Lord gives them the information that they're seeking about the gathering, but he gives them some, some really between the lines and sometimes pretty blatant warnings about this. And I didn't pick up on it quite that this is what was going on until I, I went back and kind of thought through that section heading again. So we have this, um, especially in verse seven here. We have, and he that seeketh signs shall see signs but not unto salvation. Okay, so we had just read in the section heading that the saints had great anxiety to obtain the word of the Lord upon every subject in any way concerning their salvation, but that the particular interest was upon the temporal object of the land of Zion. Okay, so really, if you look at this, it it seems to me that they are seeking a sign, but It's not unto their salvation in particular. They're more concerned with temporal matters, right? And so he says, Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. You guys are very, very interested in this land of Zion, this temporal object in view. How are you going to gather there? What's it going to look like? How are you going to organize yourselves economically? Who's going to own what? Who gets what land? And you're really putting the cart before the horse. You're really missing it. I've been trying to gather you as a people and prepare your hearts and your minds. And then whatever land you go to can be Zion. The land's not the point. And that really seems to to be a recurring theme in this, kind of a subtext almost, as the Lord is speaking to the people. And yet this is constantly what their aim is, is always a particular plot of land with a particular type of layout with a particular economic system and structure and and temporal security, right? And yeah, you, know, you, you just read through this and and after that context, the section Almost reads like a tragedy to me, honestly, because there's points in here where the Lord is warning them about what's to come if they do not prepare themselves spiritually first and cleanse the inner vessel first to inherit the land, as it were. Because it's not really the land that's the important part; it's it's them as a people. So as we get into discussing different parts of this, I, I think that's a good. A good context to to couch any of those those points that we we see in this section.
1: Yeah, you know, as you were talking about it, I couldn't help but think back to when we talked about section fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, because those sections were the ones that were given to the Whitmer sons. Oh yeah, and we talked about that whole "be careful what you wish for" and "be careful what you want to know," because in in section fourteen we have like a very specific desire to, to know one's duty, but in the section heading of fifteen and sixteen. It goes through and starts talking about, and especially in like 15 verse 4 and in 16 verse 6, it says, You have desired of me to be what is most worth unto you. And and I love that question because, you know, it goes back to that, to what you were talking about, kind of putting the cart before the horse of what do we do versus what's the, what's the greatest thing of worth and value. And in this, I I love that you brought that up about this whole temporal object in view. Now, of course, in context of this, like we talked about in the previous weeks, number one, we have Joseph and the saints who have no identity. I mean, they're they're growing in their identity. They're barely a year and a half, not even a year and a half old. They're like a year and four months old.
0: It's a nebulous identity, right? It's it's yeah.
1: It's in flux, right? And they've already gone down to Missouri. They've already experienced the disappointment of expectations. They had such high expectations as to what they thought Missouri and independence was going to look like. And it, it didn't meet any of their expectations. Even Joseph's. Even Joseph was like, "Yeah, really?
0: <laughs> he
1: goes out there. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like a frontier trading post. It's not even a town. At that point, it's
0: just a field with some trees,
1: (laughs) right? And, and they're supposed to go out there and be missionaries and really trying to get people involved in this discussion. And they're like, who are we going to convert? There's nobody really out here. And the people who are out here, Joseph even recognizes he's like, he's used to being around some of these rough and rowdy people. And even these people are like worse than, (laughs) worse than the people he's (laughs) even used to being around. And they don't want anything to do with the church and they're not going to force it down their throat but they go outside and so there's just this disappointment but yet Joseph turns around and God's like nope this is it we gotta we gotta you know purchase the land and I love some of the verses we're gonna we're gonna talk here about purchasing the land and what God is trying to focus their minds on by doing that and so yeah it's to see the Lord really trying to focus them towards the spiritual when it seems to be that they're getting kind of caught up in the okay what's next what's next how do I do it What's next? How do I do it? Yeah. And the Lord the Lord is commanding them to go purchase the land, that this is the land. But the Lord even explicitly says, don't go out. You know, don't need to do this in haste. There, there's no, there's yeah. no real reason to get so. And so why is the Lord even saying that? And so there's this evidence that they're starting to act and, and want to act really fast. And I've been in those situations before. I've been in moments when I've been in something really exciting, and I want to get it done right now, right? You know, it's like, the let's answer, just get this yeah. done. The, yeah, the answer. <laughs> let's just get this done, right? And I've had answers, and I've prayed about things in my life, and the Lord has told me, you know, just, just kind of calm, calm it down. Calm it down a little bit. Br- you know, bring it back. Bring it back. And in these verses, it seems to be almost that it's not – it comes across as a lot of condemnation. And I, and I know we're going to talk about a little bit about this because this is one of those themes that we're going to have to keep on coming back to over and over and over again about the perception of those who are living in the false self versus the perception of the, those living in the true self. That the false self is always going to see the condemnation and the wrath of God. And the, the true self is always going to see the kind benevolence of God. Yeah. Even in the difficult situations, even even in the moments of trauma, that – you know, I, I used to, be, I used to believe that even if there's subconsciously of this God that would actively bring trials and tribulations, right? It's like, it's like this trial and tribulation is going to be for your good. And that God is really hard to trust because at that point, so even if subconsciously that God is heaping trials and persecutions on top of you, just saying, trust me about it. Trust me about it. And at some point, it's, yeah, trust God, but God's not the source of our pain. He's not the source of our trials. He's not the source of our trauma. Now, what I've noticed in my own life and my own relationship with God, though, is that he will let himself be the scapegoat to blame for those things. And in no small part, that is about how we put upon god our burdens i've blamed god for all sorts of things i've yelled at god i've 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 been in places where i've invented words to talk about god and to god and yet he swallows it up and and he and, and he, he just brings it in and he sits with me in love And when I'm finally in a place where I get to recognize God's love, all of a sudden, the wrathful, violent, vengeful, angry God that I saw before, who was there giving me all the punishment and all the trials, and was trying to, you know, making sure that I qualified for His love, I realized was a fiction of my own creation in my natural man and in my false self. And so, yeah, I see that when he's coming out and he's like, all right, if this is, if this is what you see, this is what you, you know, this is what you're going to see. This is that perception you're going to see of this angry, vengeful, violent self. But then, as you said, this, this section is all over the place. God's, God's demeanor and attitude and the way he presents himself, he bounces around a lot. So like, what, what's the point? Until we begin to realize that as he's beginning to shift focuses from this is kind of your perception of me into, here I truly am. And in this way that you want to put the cart before the horse, you're not spiritually prepared. You haven't emptied sufficiently. You haven't done what you've needed to do. Man, there's going to be this, this verse on meekness. I even messaged it to you <laughs> earlier today. On meekness, I was like, oh my goodness, this is my favorite verse. It's like the very last page. You know, I just I'm 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 just geeking out about getting to that verse. But as as we begin to empty, And that takes place, we begin to see the kind, benevolent, compassionate, merciful God that's always already been there. And yet, that's not the God they're necessarily seeing right now. And so, God leads them line upon line, precept upon precept. And he's going to pull him through, and we 're going to kind of see God this this beautiful way that God really kind of weaves through this whole section, whether or not this is God actually saying this or whether or not this is Joseph kind of pulling out his own his own self into the page I, I don't entirely know, but at least we do know is, is there's going to be a way that we're going to come out here towards the the latter end of this section, and we're going to see God's merciful arm just just laid bare and in, in, in a beautiful way
0: as you were talking about the the saints and, and them, them wanting to, you're getting antsy, you know, wanting to move forward with this and, hey, let's let's go and let's get the land and let's do all this stuff. It made me remember the last verse in this section, which kind of ties it all up. The last verse says, these things remain to overcome through patience, that such may receive a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, otherwise a greater condemnation. God is never in a hurry to do anything. He's got eternity, right? There's no, there's no concept of like we got to get this done quick, <laughs> right? Yeah, everything in its time. Patience. As you were talking about, you know, us maybe uh, a person being angry at God or or yelling at God, um, blaming God for this or that difficulty or trial in their life. I really think there's something to that. That doesn't offend God, not in the sense that He's going to go away. From that. you know I I'm trying to liken it to my sentiments as a parent. that if I have a child who is angry with me or upset with with something, I think I, I can imagine that I would much more prefer them communicating something to me than nothing at all, no matter what that something is. Right. I'd much rather they communicate their pain to me than keep it to themselves. Even if that pain is directed at me, that means there's still some sort of a relationship there. There's still, we're still open, right? There's still a flow. And, and when that stops, if there's not that anymore, not even them expressing their frustration with me, then, then that's a bigger problem right And so I actually see a lot of of meaning and value even in a person who expresses their anger at God because they're at least they're comfortable enough with their relationship with him with our parents to do that, right. And so I think there's something there that I'm I'm gonna you know be thinking about from time to time and 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 uh, yeah, anyway
1: yeah you know, even with my own children, I would rather have them come to me with their feelings and anger even if they're directed towards me, yeah and even if I know that i I wasn't the direct cause of their pain but but they see that that they think that i am i I would rather have that than to have them bottle it up inside and either blame it on themselves or to not come to me at all right. It, it, it's the fact that they're coming to me and engaging in the conversation. And when I try to justify myself and be like, uh-uh, it's not me, it's you, and you try to heap it back and throw it on top of there, I mean, that's the scriptural version of Satan, of the accuser, of trying mm-hmm. to, like, nail the other person's accountability to themselves. And yet my relationship with God has been transformed in a way that whenever I've thrown things against God, of course it's not God's fault. And sometimes it's not even, sometimes it's not even our fault. Sometimes life just happens. Sometimes things just happen. Not everything happens for a reason. And we, and that's painful for us because we always, as human beings, we seek to find reasons for our pain and trauma. Sometimes we can link it back to a good cause, but in a lot of cases, there just isn't a cause. And so we heap these moments on to God who just Swallows them right, just as my kids when my kids come to me in their anger and their frustration towards me, if I become confrontational back to them trying to set the record straight, it, it just it escalates, but as I listen to their pain and as I sit with that and their pain and, and as we kind of walk through and we process through things inevitably i, I literally i 'll say probably nine out of ten times whenever i ju- when we just kind of sit down and I just sit with them and we process through and I just kind of sit there they'll 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 eventually always say, dad, I know it wasn't your fault. I'm just, I was just really sad.
0: It takes patience, right?
1: <laughs> Sometimes it's quite
0: a lot of patience.
1: Man, right? So much patience. And, and, and I love that because that really kind of transfers in here into this concept of signs. Yeah. Because we're going to talk here from like seven to 12 about this concept of signs. And we've heard this conversation over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's like, there's nothing new about this. A wicked generation seeketh for a sign. Don't go seeking for a sign. Don't go looking for proof of like God's existence just to be able to heap it upon our pride. We've gotten those narratives. We get it. I, and I don't know anybody else who like goes out and is like, God, just give me a sign. And if you give me a sign, I'll... we don't do things like that. That's just not, that's just not in our culture. But what I've noticed is that, you know, it says here in verse 10, yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. And the thing is is, God is always willing, God's always willing to give forth these signs. God is not lacking for evidence of God, right? And so, in this way, what I've noticed is that as as I focus the intentionality of my inner self, this goes back to like what we've talked about, what I've talked about with James Fowler, uh, you know he has a book, The Stages of Faith. And he talks about faith as like this inner core essence of our humanity that is trying to focus and come out, and and we create modes that we focus our faith and channel our faith into, into creating real-life experiences. But faith is that inner core essence, that thing that causes us to wake up every morning, to put one foot in front of the other. But when we actually direct our intentionality, our faith into God, something magical happens in that we begin to see the patterns of God emerge in our lives. And it's just kind of like what we've been doing with the Scripture. We've been doing it in just one particular way with, with these episodes in talking so readily about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Because just by going and pushing ourselves into that particular conversation with God, not to saying that's the only conversation we can have with God, that's the only pattern we can find with God, that's just for this particular show and episode and things that you and I study, that's just a very, very helpful way for us to see God. It's just where we're at right now. (laughs) It's just where we're at right now. You know, do this again in four years, it'll be something else. I hope it's something else, right? I hope I'm growing. I hope I'm not like still churning in these same stories. but. With that, we begin to realize that the more we leave the false self behind, you know, we start to see the Beatitudes in every section. You know, I I see it already here. We're going to have a Sermon on the Mount verse in the verse 16. We're going to talk about meekness at the very end. Like, it's scattered all over in these sections. And those are the patterns that we begin, those are the signs. And so I, I begin to see signs almost synonymous a lot of times with patterns, that these things are, are correlated, that whenever you see these patterns emerge of God, you're beginning to see the signs of God because we're beginning to see what God, who He He really is, as opposed to what we've projected or thought He was. And, and He really does reveal Himself in miraculous ways that we begin to see Him. And that's when we direct that faith and that intentionality into God. So that's why these signs only come by faith. They don't come just by conjuring them. They have to come through that intentionality of faith.
0: Yeah. So this goes back to a conversation that we've had multiple times about spiritual eyes, right? The gift of seership, so to speak. Being able to see with our spiritual eyes, our eyes being open to the things of the Lord, looking around us and seeing with our spiritual eyes what God is doing all around us. Things that our eyes were closed to before, that our false self blinded us to that we couldn't see. But now that our eyes are opened, we can see them and we become aware of them. And that's, that is, I think, it, the, one of the strongest senses in which faith brings about miracles. It's, it's not so much like a causal relationship as uh, between the faith and the miracle itself or the actual occurrence of the miracle, but between faith and the awareness or recognition or realization of that thing, of that miracle, so to speak, or that sign.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of looking at that because – When we start to realize, we live in the transactional world with a transactional God. I do X, God does Y. And many scriptures are even written in this context, so it's it's really hard that if we really want to try to prove the transactional God, it's going to be really, really, really easy. Because the scriptures are very much written in that language. That has been the language and understanding of God for so long. But at the same time, we've never really established Zion. As well either. and so that's one of the things that I look at a lot of these a lot of these scriptures, a lot of these these people who taught certain things and believed certain things, and the beliefs that came out of the way they lived and the beliefs that functioned and kind of gave them structure for the way they lived. Now of course, we have here even in these very chapters that God gave them commandments that they didn't live up to. so we have people who don't even live up to the commandments that they're given, sure. But we begin to realize that none of these people with the beliefs that they're having and how they're living it ever really brought about Zion. And so there has to be something here just to, at what point do we have to say that something weird is going on here? God keeps giving one standard, but yet nobody ever, ever, ever really listens as a people. It's never, ever, really, ever happened. I mean, we have Enoch Zion, right? And we have like the people in, in the Book of Mormon just after Christ comes. And those are like the only real type of Zion type societies we get. We in have scripture. other
0: tiny little examples from the Book of Mormon, you know, it, not not to the extent of like uh, Enoch or people after uh, Christ, but we have uh, the people of Alma for a very short period of time seem to be starting off like a budding society that could become that, you know, then that changes. And then we have the anti Nephi lehis that are somewhat described this way but but it's true no no like persistent society like in fourth Nephi or Enoch
1: right, and so we kind of left to ask ourselves, number one, why are we never why are we never willing to do this and and what is re- what is really always ever required and so th- there's that one thing going on, but in in a lot of other ways I think. A lot of scripture demonstrates that we really do project a lot of ourselves and that that man projected a lot of himself into scripture and and that there's a lot of these things that are going along and that's really why one of my favorite articles of faith has really become that and where it's talking about how god we believe everything that God has revealed, everything that he does now reveal, and that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Is what the ninth article of faith eighth article
0: yes, that's correct um.
1: Ninth. Ninth article of faith. And so we look at this verse and I think we believe in it, but we really don't believe in it. (laughs) Right? Because we, we believe in it so far as that if they make changes, okay, we'll go along with it because that's what the prophet says. But we don't believe in it because we don't really allow ourselves. You know, I love how Meister Eckhart had once said it in that we have to even give up our very idea of God. And that one of God's greatest blessings is for him, for him to help us challenge our very notion of God. And this isn't a call for atheism. This isn't a call for him. He, he was an, he was a, an absolute believer, Meister Eckhart. But what he was trying to get us to do is this thing that we've talked about, projecting our, our false self onto God, the idea of our false self onto God. And our need to repent to see God clearly, to be able to let go. And that's why I love this, this section has stood out so, so beautifully to me, is just because it's such a great section to demonstrate that repentance process of seeing God in one way and how that kind of like immediately melts away into a completely different perception.
0: You know, I really see. That beared out, born out in 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 uh, some of these verses here, uh, cor- uh, especially starting like around twenty. But you know, to your point about Article of Faith nine, you know, as you were talking about that, it made me think. You know, we believe in Article of Faith nine in an institutional context, but not so much in a personal context. And and that I think I think you're right. I think that's what might be lacking is is bringing that at a personal level, not just an institutional level.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I like that.
0: So, you know, as, as we were talking about spiritualize and changing and seeing things differently, and these verses then get into this concept of transfiguration, and it's just kind of briefly mes- mentioned, and then it kind of moves on. But here in verse 20, it says, Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome, and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come, when the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern— which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount. Of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. So several things here. One transfiguration is um, related to this concept of seeing spiritually, having our spiritual eyes opened. Right? You know, there's multiple accounts in the scriptures of uh, prophets who say, "Oh, they they see things." I think Moses he talks about this. You know, I, I saw God with my eyes. Well, not my my natural eyes, but my spiritual eyes. Right? I was transfigured before Him, and and this is this is a theme that and and concept principle that we talk about a lot. And really, what it gets to the heart of is is this concept of of these spiritual eyes, opening our eyes to see the things of God, not in a temporal sense, but in a spiritual sense. How the pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How is it that that happens? It's it's our purity of heart that allows us to see God everywhere. And that I think is at the heart of the concept of transfiguration and what, what he means here. Now, th- this is kind of interesting, this little, uh, this little thing at the end of verse 21. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it says, of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. It's almost like this hinting that Joseph Smith is going, it's, you know, more of this is going to be revealed to him. And yet I don't know. Of when this was ever done, do we? I don't know of any uh, reference to a more "quote unquote" full account of the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, I know there's a lot of like commentary. Oh, that was like the endowment of this or that. And there's some commentary on it, but I don't know anything that really purports to be "quote unquote" a full account. Do Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I don't. I, you know, I when I read that, I had the same thought, and yeah, I'd love to do some more research on that to see if that was ever given or the context.
0: Yeah, it, it, there's almost the implication that it, you know, Joseph Smith would receive it, but it doesn't, you know, explicitly say that. But it's almost like, hey, there's there's more that you could know about that, but you're not going to know it yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you you were talking about you know all these different instances of Zion and and why is it so rare, so to speak, right and and the Lord has it constantly gives this pattern, but then it's not followed. And that just goes right into what verse 22 and 23 says, right? And now verily I say unto you that as I have said that I would make known my will unto you, behold, I will make it known unto you, not by the way of commandment, for there are many who observe not to keep my commandments. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of chuckled right. at that, almost like... Okay, I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to command you to do it because you're really not ready for the commandment. (laughs) And so it would just be a condemnation. (laughs) So here goes. Uh, But unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. There's a lot there. And I I wonder if if this isn't hinting at, at one of the things that we've been discussing lately about... The way that we approach the scriptures and these "quote unquote" mysteries of God—what hermeneutic? We use that word a lot. It's basically a metaphorical lens that we use to look at and interpret scripture. You know, a, a way that a filter by which we we pull things through to 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 put them into a pattern, so to speak. And you know, what what is it that we're looking at for there that that helps? Us understand these mysteries, so to speak, of the kingdom. That's really beatitude talk, and and I think you see that too. You know, the beginning beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, and then the last one, you know, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, this I I think here there's this well of living water springing up and everlasting life. You know, this this also references when multiple times when Christ says that you drink of this water you'll never thirst basically it's it's a way of approaching god and starting to view him differently in a way that's inexhaustible right it 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 constantly gives new meaning and peace and assurance and a way of of helping us come into a deeper and and more fulfilling relationship with god constantly. And that's kind of kind of how I see this first.
1: Yeah, you know, I love that it talks here about keeping the commandments because you know, in the scriptures we have commandments that we do and we have commandments that we keep. And I've noticed a distinction between the two in that doing commandments are usually like a one-off, like like Nephi going out and getting the plates. Mm. You know, once you get once you get the plates <laughs> you, that's kind of it. <laughs> you, you're not going to go back and get him again. And so, it's kind of a one-off moment. But on those things that we keep, it really becomes a nature of an expression of who and what we are.
0: Love thy neighbor. That's not something that you just like go do and you're like, okay, I'm done. I did that.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and and loving isn't just something that we think about on, on a moment's notice. It's it's something that we develop and and that we come into contact with that we really – have that experience with God in recognizing his love. You know, in 1 John 4, it says that we love because God loved us first. The, the, that kind of, the unmoved mover, if you want to go into kind of an Aristotelian term, but, but that but the God was the originator of that love, talks to us and gives us a knowledge of that love, and then we act from it. And that's why, you know, I've had the conversation so many times with so many Latter-day Saints, and it's one of those things that I think is sadly so prevalent in missions where keeping the commandments is seen as a checklist. Mm. You do all the checklists and you get blessings. You do everything perfectly. You, then you, God owes you blessings. God is bound when he does what, you know, when you do what he it's says.
0: It's your wages.
1: <laughs> right. It's your wages for, for doing exactly what it was there. But yet my own experience on my mission and I know countless other missionaries and, and other, and other people just in our walks with Christ. It's that we learned how to love because someone loved us first that we just act in that love because we are in love and it's from that motivation of just being in love with God that we just we just act because that's all we can do and so in this way it's it's to keep the commandments if you love me keep my commandments if if you recognize the love so the question is how do we come into the recognition of God's love and for for me it's it has become that beatitude conversation. That that, that for me is what has landed the, the strongest in my life. To be able to walk through that path and being able to empty my worldly identities and cares, mourning my lost identities and coming into a moment of meekness, because it's in that moment of meekness it says the meek shall inherit the earth. And so here we're seeing going back to verse 20 we're talking about an inheritance upon the earth but an inheritance can only really ever happen if you're meek and to be meek you need to be able to pour out the identities of the earth and to have that morning experience and so from that we we just become the person that follows the path of God you know that that's what the blessedness means in the beatitudes it's it's this complicated word of like this is what God would do if he were here It's, it's not a blessed shall be. It's a blessed are. It's an immediate thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we come down here to verse 23 and it says, and in him shall be a well of living water. You know, that comes to my, it comes to mind. One of my, my absolute favorite stories of the woman at the well in John four, where he tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that he is living water. And this is, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition of these two concepts of living water. You know, water is always symbolic in this text of chaos, of, of disorder, of of the unknown, of oblivion, of, of absolute disorder. But living water, living water is, is that thing which brings life out of the deepest, darkest parts of our chaos. Those moments in our lives where we are destitute, when we have been broken down, when we do not qualify for anything. And yet Christ wells up within us and Christ comes to save us. That's living water. When you didn't deserve anything because you weren't qualifying for anything and Christ came to save you and broke through and you experienced the love of God, that is living water. And so here we begin to realize that living water will come to those who keep the commandments, but it's also been my experience that living water comes even when not. That God will break through those barriers and those walls to find us. I mean, it's just like Saul. You know, Saul on on, on the road to was it, to Damascus, where he meets Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ comes down— and there's a little bit of confrontation there, you know, why persecutest thou me? And, and, and he's like, well, who are you? And yet he, he didn't deserve it. He had done nothing to deserve it. But yet Christ comes to him and transforms him in that moment. He becomes a new person. And so, yes, we are in these moments when if we are keeping the commandments. So what I think is coming out from here in verse 23, is we're talking about a ver- as talking about a beatitude journey. You go through the beatitudes. You go through this process. We we just like you were saying, Ben. We will reveal this mystery of the kingdom, the mystery of what it means to give up all the identities of the earth and to accept the identities of God. That that is a process in itself, and in that we will experience the well of living waters. But also, lest you forget, and you think that you've done this on your own. I also bring those who don't even deserve it, have not even consciously been on this path, I too bring them living water. I absolutely love that about the scriptures and about Christ.
0: Yeah, I, I see I see a lot of ways to to take this this verse here and um and pull some things out of it. I, I have written in the margin Alma twenty six twenty two, which is which is basically talking about learning the mysteries of God and, and how those are revealed to us. That's Ammon's Discussion after, after uh, going among the Lamanites to preach. So, you know these these next verses here, twenty four through like thirty one. I've been waiting to discuss these like all year. <laughs> 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 these are some of the most marked up verses that I have in my Doctrine and Covenants, and and it's just a fascinating little narrative of how the Lord presents. The case of the land to the people and says, okay, if, if this is what you want, I'll give it to you and this is how it needs to be done. Otherwise, there's going to be problems. And it's interesting in the context of what we're talking about with this section because really what the Lord had been offering them was, was a way to prepare themselves to become a Zion people. Um, and and then they would inherit the land as 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 a part of that meekness, right? Um, that was the the effect. And and the saints here though seem to be grasping and 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 striving towards the land as the cause. You know, once we can go there and live there, and we're away from everybody, and we can build our own community, then we'll be able to build Zion. And the Lord says, well, sure, if you want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not exactly how it goes. But if that's the way you want to do it, really, here's some here's some principles to follow on that. So this, this is, is fascinating to me. And now behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste. Lest there should be confusion, which bringeth pestilence. So here we're, we're back to this, this hastiness thing. You know, it always reminds me of uh, the Lord of the Rings, those, those, uh, the Ents, they're always doing everything so slow, you know, and everybody's like, no, you need to hurry up. And they're like, no, everything needs to be slow. You're too hasty. <laughs> and, and the Lord's just telling me, okay yes this is my will I do want this for you I'm not I'm not trying to keep the land away this really is a, a good thing for you but you got to get the horse before the cart on this and if you rush into it you're you're not preparing yourself properly for the experience that i have for you confusion pestilence well that's basically exactly what happens right so this entire these entire next verses are 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 both prophetic and instructive and because we know the history they they foreshadow a tragedy here of the people in a sense obviously there's good that comes out of all this but but there's quite tragic circumstances behold the land of zion i the lord hold it in mine own hands okay it's mine i own it, so to speak, right? <laughs> I know we've touched on that discussion of ownership, but I, I have power over the, this land, and whatever I deem necessary to be done with it will be done. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Now, this this verse is interesting to me, and I, I'd like to get your thoughts if you have any on it, because what's interesting is is this is obviously a A word for word and an allusion to Christ's imperative to the Pharisees about who to pay tribute to. And it's, it's a, it's a commandment or a, maybe commandment's not the word. It's, it's a a recommendation or, or conclusion or principle that he teaches the Pharisees in an answer to their question. Render unto Caesar things that are Caesar's. What's interesting here is that in this verse, the Lord takes this This ethic or this imperative upon himself, right? And says, this is actually how I operate. And not just, you know, hey, Pharisees, this is how you should act. but This is how the people should act within your Roman oppressive context. The Lord's actually taking that ethic upon himself and saying, this is actually how I act. I thought that was kind of an interesting way of, of couching it. You know, it's almost like a condescension. He's, he's even bringing himself down to the level of Caesar to deal in that way. And uh, there's something there about that. I think that is, is so, I think we could analyze that for a while. But, but in any case, on the surface here, what, what he's basically saying is that, uh, you know, he explains it in the next verses, wherefore I, the Lord will that you should purchase the lands that you may have advantage of the world that you may have claim on the world, that they may not be stirred up unto anger. So this is this is interesting because the the concept here isn't so much, hey, um these people own the land and you need to go buy it from them, so that now you own it. That's actually not the story here. The the story the Lord seems to be presenting here is the land is mine and i give it to you however you have a responsibility and a stewardship over how things are going to go from here and what you need to do in order to make peace with the people that are there is you need to go give them money that way you um you know you and or uh, er, er, there was a the contemplation podcast have been talking about uh, mercy and justice and it's gone along with some concepts that we've talked about in the past but this is an example of where um there this mercy is extended where they're they're paying the money for the land where you know really the lord has given it to them so it's theirs and like in a in a, a true justice sense they could just go take it right he says you can either purchase it with money or blood But in order to fulfill that in a fully just way, it has to be completed, perfected by mercy. And how is that mercy offered? By them paying for it so that it prevents their enemies, so to speak. I don't know that they're, they're not talked about as enemies here, but they are in previous sections. But the world is pacified, like actually pacified by this. You prevent them from being angry so you're, you're offering this mercy that not only um, accounts for purchasing the land but also pacifies and and helps and offers a way for the world or the people that that have possession of the land to not be angry to not sin right It's a very Christ-like way of doing things actually <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's so much in these three verses. There's just those 25 through 27, you know, and and it'll go down into 28 and 29 and that will take take a long time to go through those. But 20, 25 through 27, as I'm looking at these, first off, it's positing who, whose land this actually is. As you said, you know, this is God's, God has this whole thing, but these scriptures are also very pragmatic, but pragmatic for the point of reconciliation. And and I like what you said, their mercy. Because then at that point, it's that God comes down and it's like, I could give this to you, but not for your sake, but for those around you, go purchase the land. Now, to be fair, there's hardly anyone there. Yeah. But to go there and to purchase it for for even their sake and for the claim that you have for that. Now, that's going to come up into contention in in a long way because once they get kicked out, they try to get their land back and they never do. But – I love here into this whole render unto Caesar, and, and you, know, you made a really great distinction there because in in the scriptures, because it's it's uh, the render unto Caesar scripture. It's in Matthew twenty two, it's in Mark twelve, and it's in Luke twenty. So it's it's in three of the four Gospels. It's a very prominent story, and it's always given as Jesus telling everybody else what to do. But this is the first time where it's like I, the Lord, render unto Caesar. So what gives? And for me, this really does go back to the temptation of Christ. When Christ is there and Satan basically looks out over the world in Matthew 4, and he says basically Every, all of these kingdoms. He, he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of the world. And Satan says, I'll give you everything if you fall down to worship. me." And Christ's response was that, you know, get the hence, and you should only worship God and him only shall thou serve. But the, we, we've we talked about it before, about this whole inheriting the earth and inheriting the kingdoms and all the powers and the principalities and the glories, that Christ recognized that he would already mixed his time and labor with it, and so it's therefore mm. his. This very mm-hmm. Lockean concept, this very American, this entered our, our cultural system, this Western view of being able to interpret scripture that needs to die. but. We tend to think that God owns it that way. And it even comes through a little bit here in this section, right? It's like, God owns this. (laughs) I love
0: it. Well, it's a useful construct until it's not.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. As long as we don't read too much into this. But yet, it's the meek that inherit the earth. And even though they purchase it with money, only the meek will ever inherit the earth. And I love that you pulled that out there about this whole point that if they don't go through and do this the right way, then confusion and pestilence are going to come in and, and basically they're going to lose it. And it's so and it's it's very prophetic, they end up losing it. Only the meek will inherit the earth. And that has and that's mostly a spiritual phrase. That's mostly a personal kind of an esoteric way of looking at it. But the fact is that it has exoteric ways and implications. It has external world implications. The saints lost Missouri, for those who've done history, you know, the saints did not deserve what they got in Missouri. But the saints were not guiltless in what happened there either. Right. There's a lot of what they did that ended up set, planting the seed for their own persecution. Right. What we've talked about here on, in this episode, at least, in, and even in this, this is no small part of it. By putting the cart before the horse, they, they, they were already kind of dooming themselves before they started. And yet here, with the Lord coming down to render unto Caesar, God has truly emptied. He's like, I don't need the money. I don't need the money. But who demands the money? Well, Caesar demands the money. So for the sake of reconciliation of my children who are in the story of Caesar, I will pay Caesar money to reconcile my children who believe in the power of Caesar. And so that's that's who their neighbors are. You know, they're the ones who adhere to the state. So this whole render into Caesar, who is Caesar? At the time, it's the state. Right. It's the Missouri. It's Missouri. It's it's their local governments. He's talking about the government here. And so to give to the government, the due. now God can come through and just do it. It's God's, if you want to do the ownership construct. Or in
0: a broader sense, the world. Right. You know, it's the, the worldly view and attitude perspective of how things work. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to the kingdom of God way of, of viewing how things work.
1: Right, exactly. And that's a really great juxtaposition. The ways the world's works versus the way the kingdom of God works. And the way that the kingdom of God works is everyone is emptied. They don't care if they have to pay for it because that satisfies the demands of someone else's sense of justice. You know, we've talked about that all the time about how Christ sacrificed for our sense of justice. You know, we talk about this universal justice. I've never been able to find some cosmic scale of justice. Yeah. But yet, Christ died for man's sense of justice, and he proclaimed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so, in this way, even God now is leading his saints. And and that's the thing, is there's such this human element within us that seeks for justice. In this way, God is saying, listen, I've emptied. I inherit the earth because I'm meek, not because I mixed my time and labor with it but i come into the situation and it's my earth but i'll still pay caesar what caesar thinks he's owed so that i can satisfy the demands of caesar's justice so that i can be in a place where i can reconcile with my other children who are here man such just a beautiful just a beautiful way and such a practical pragmatic way of being able to bring in the beatitudes into a real life moment that god is now Coming in, God can destroy Caesar right now, and Caesar wouldn't even know what to do with himself, right? But that's not the point. God didn't. God has never come to destroy. He's come to heal and to reconcile and to unify. And here we see it all over again.
0: It really is a powerful example. You know, as as it as it goes here, uh, verse twenty-eight. For Satan putteth it into their hearts to anger against you and to the shedding of blood. And here's kind of the crux of the whole thing. Here, wherefore the land of Zion shall not be obtained but by purchase or by blood, otherwise there is none inheritance for you and if by purchase behold ye are blessed or I might say ye are blessed right <laughs> yeah I mean the it, I don't know if it's just us and our, our beatitude hermeneutic but it, it really is pretty uh, pretty drenched here right <laughs> this is interesting here so there's two ways that Zion can be obtained it says by purchase or by blood. And the implication here to me is that they would be justified because the Lord has given them this land. It's really theirs to, to be given. They would be justified in taking it by force. It just, just in the sense of obtaining the land from a justice standpoint, right? But the Lord says this really isn't The way to do this, because it's not going to accomplish the ultimate end that you want. And the ultimate end isn't justice. The ultimate end is a Zion people. You know, the kingdoms of the world are fixated and constantly talking about justice. And the kingdom of God is much more concerned with the concept of mercy. As my people, if you want to build Zion, You need to be, you need to start from that foundation of mercy. But if you, and if by blood, as you are forbidden to shed blood, lo, your enemies are upon you, and ye shall be scourged from city to city and from synagogue to synagogue, and but few shall stand to receive an inheritance. It won't work out the way you think it will. You can't take this by force. Zion cannot be redeemed by force, only by mercy. What the Lord is is offering them here, as He said in in the previous, you know, if by purchase, behold, ye are blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, the saints do purchase the land, but then what ends up happening is they kind of get kicked off anyway. And this is an oversimplification of what happens, but they get pushed out. They get forced to sell their land, and and some of them are are so persecuted and, and mobbed that they don't even, you know, get around to selling. They, uh, they just leave. And then they return. Well, there's, there's at least a group of them that, that return with the intention of taking the land by force. And what's interesting here is that it's like, okay, well, we've already bought it. So now that we've already purchased it with our money, it's ours. So we have the right to take it by force. But that is actually ignoring what these verses say. Because the Lord didn't say that they were justified in using violence after they had purchased it. He said it was theirs, and they used the money in order to satisfy the demands of those people that they purchased it from, or the people that, uh, that are around them, or if the government owned it, the government. The same principle would apply. You know, It doesn't matter whether you are deeded the land or not. How is it that you obtain this land? You don't obtain it by violence. It doesn't matter if it you have a piece of paper that says it's yours. You can't obtain this land by violent conquest, regardless of whether it's uh, rightfully yours in a legal sense.
1: Yeah, and we're going to find out later on that Zion's camp, when they try to bring Zion's camp down to try to save him, that just the presence and the potentiality of what even Zion's camp was a symbol of to the Missourians yeah. became the very justification that the governor and that they needed to, to officially kick the Mormons out. That, that before Zion's camp, they very much could have likely have been reconciled. And we're going to, yeah, it, it just goes on. Even in verse 33, I have sworn in my wrath. And I, I love verse 32 going back. I, the Lord, am angry with the wicked. <laughs> well, of course wicked are going to see an angry God, right?
0: Yeah, that's a subjective perception thing.
1: Right. And so they're going to see that. I have sworn in my wrath and decreed upon the wars. Of course, th- when wars start, people are going to see a wrathful God. You don't have to go very far in war literature to have people believing in an angry, wrathful, violent, vengeful God. I have sworn in my wrath and decreed up ap- wars upon the face of the earth, and the wicked shall slay the wicked. And fear shall come upon every man. Now, this goes back to those podcasts we did for the Book of Mormon, right? For in Mormon, when it's, I think it's Mormon chapter. Mormon four or
0: five. Yeah, Mormon yeah, four five.
1: The Wicked Slay the Wicked, it's in the Book of Mormon. We have it in, we have it throughout the war chapters that we talked about it in the war chapters. We have two segments, if anybody wants to go back and listen. We have a two-part segment on the war chapters. Just talking about this exact same thing. And the principle is consistent throughout the whole narrative. That the wicked slay the wicked. And so this really gets down into a conversation of what the Lord means by wicked. But in this, it's those who have not emptied, those who are not true peacemakers, those who have not followed the beatitude path. They've not not come through the whole emptying and the the mourning and and the meekness and the, the righteousness filling and the mercifulness. And the purity of heart, and they have not learned to see the face of God in the other, and they have not become peacemakers. You know, the Latter day Saint plight in Missouri was sufferable until they rose up to fight back, and that is when they lost everything.
0: Well, and let's be clear it, I don't know enough about it to say what numbers there were, but it wasn't even necessarily a majority of the saints that did fight back, right? there, There's a good number of them that really did. Suffer it with patience, and 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 left, and you know, kind of did follow this, but there was a, at least a good number of them that didn't, and that's what precipitated a lot of the the eventual the the, the escalation, I should say, of the conflict.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And in verse thirty four, and the saints shall also handily escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them, and will come down in heaven, and with the presence of my Father, and consume the wicked with unquenchable fire. You know th- that sounds very, very destructive, right? Violent, vengeful God coming down to destroy the wicked, you know, on behalf of the righteous. Mm-hmm. But yet we learn again, you know, through this kind of talk, the consuming of the wicked with un- this is fire is always this purification. God is always. I love Howard W. Hunter. He has a quote that, uh, that I've quoted quite a bit in several of the articles that I've written on the topic about how when the Pharisees and the Sadducees would always come and try to trip him up. About how he responded to them with non answers he responded to their like false dualisms with with non answers and Howard W. Hunter says the reason he did this was because he loved the Pharisees and the Sadducees that he had actually come to save them and and I love applying that to verses like this, where we always want to get have the wicked get theirs we always want to have the wicked get punished, get destroyed, get burned in hell for time and all eternity. But yet this unquenchable fire is always a purification. It's God always coming in to try to still reconcile and reclaim his children. And I think that's a really important thing to keep always keep in mind.
0: You know, and it also is sort of a rhetorical way of telling those who have been wronged that justice will be done. Right, it it it's it's a way, it's a rhetorical way of telling them that their demands for justice will be satisfied. You know, within a certain perception and and worldview, if you're wronged and you and you feel vengeful, the Lord saying, "Let me take care of it. I will. Vengeance is mine." Right, the Lord says. It it's a way of pacifying us to say, you know what, the the Lord said he's going to take care of it, and. And uh, so, it, like I said, it's kind of a rhetorical way. If my conception right now of the Lord taking care of it is that He's going to burn my enemies with fire, at least that means that I can move on with my life, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's almost like the dusting of the feet thing. And so I, I see a rhetorical, a rhetorical weight to this that that exists within a certain perception of the other and of God. But but uh, I I definitely think in a more a realistic or a sense of reality of who God really is and how He's actually going to act. Once we we sort of come into that realization of of seeing God in, in our neighbor and, and loving them, then we no longer have to view rhetorical instances like this of the Lord coming down to destroy our enemies in a in a punishing way, but in in a reconciliatory, restorative way. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot.
0: Like I said, it kind of goes back to the dusting of your feet thing. It's like this ordinance that the Lord offers us because we're not really ready to fully forgive our enemies, but the least he can do is offer us a way to give it to him, right? Just give it to me so you can to take it off your shoulders. And then as you do that, you become aware more and more that you never had to take it on to begin with, you know, and you can just forgive and let it go. But it's kind of a step in that direction, I think. Yeah.
1: Now I have I have some things to talk about here, kind of on the next page, getting into verse fifty-seven. But is there anything here between uh, verses thirty-four and fifty-seven that uh, that you had that you wanted to talk about?
0: A, a few things. I think the main thing that stood out to me here. Uh, there's not. I don't know. If there's a ton of meat on this one, but I liked verse forty. It says, "Let all the monies which can be spared, it mattereth not unto me whether it be little or much, be sent up unto the land of Zion unto them whom I have appointed to receive." I just think it's interesting. You know, the Lord isn't concerned with a particular amount. What he's concerned is that we, we consecrate, that we give all we can. You know, the, the man, the rich man that comes to, to Christ and he says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. It didn't matter. It didn't matter how much he had. It mattered that he gave it all up, whatever that was. And so I, I just, this concept here, whether it be little or much, it, it doesn't matter. Because you know the Lord doesn't need the money. What he's, what he's offering them is an opportunity to give something up, to give it up so that they realize that they're not dependent upon that material thing.
1: Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great point. The opportunities, and this kind of comes back to, I think this verse, this chapter, this section, <laughs> whatever we want to call this, uh, really does a good job in showing several aspects of, of a pragmatic or practical God. Of really coming down and, and reasoning with his children, and, and I like there that you bring out God doesn't need our money; He really doesn't need the money, and He's always telling Joseph, "Don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I got it taken care of." And Joseph is always fretting about it because, you know, he's the face of it and he's the one who takes the brunt of it. You know, God's not taking the brunt of it, kind of a thing. Joseph is seemingly, hmm. and it really is. It's a good. It's a good chapter and verse there to be able to have us kind of turn back to recognizing that God really has everything taken care of. As we take a few steps into the dark, He's always there for us. You know, i turning to verse 57. There are quite a few verses in between. But turning to 57, this is the one I really wanted to get to. And I've actually covered this topic pretty – we've already covered this pretty extensively already by this point. But it says, and again, verily I say unto you, those who desire in their hearts in meekness to warn sinners to repentance, let them be ordained unto this power.
0: Yeah, I love it. There's so much there.
1: Yeah, there really is because we have – this meekness again, it's not anyone who gets to go call their neighbor to repentance for sinning right it's It's not the one who stands, up. "I can't tell you how many Facebook conversations I've been in in the last ten, fifteen years of people with the largest egos in the group calling everyone else to repentance, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like you need to repent, and there's this one group that we're a part of. It's kind of becoming a running joke about going and seeing your bishop. Yeah, and it just because because everyone's always throwing around this little epithet of just go see your bishop. You've sinned. Go see your bishop. <laughs> and so there's it, it's but here the people that the Lord is looking for to go tell people about repentance. Now, what is repentance? It's about seeing God differently, seeing ourselves differently, and seeing the world differently. And are you going to take someone who still has the attachments to the world? Who still has the egos of the world? Who still has all of those attachments to all of the physical things of the world and have them go out and call somebody else for sin? You know that's the same thing as having a a, a moat of you know that whole beam and moat idea. Right. No, God's like those who have emptied and have mourned, no bias, and who stand in their meekness, who have no bias, right, or as little bias. They've they've learned how to stand in the emptiness of the of of losing the false self those who can go those are those who can go out and to tell people that you can see god differently and that god is this loving god who's coming out to reconcile and to love and to have compassion and mercy upon you you know sin is that whole missing the mark right or sin is the that thing by which we think we are unworthy And so it's the person who comes out and who's talking about that. The only person who really can talk about that is someone who's meek, someone who's just let go. But all that worldly junk that's out there is let go of all of it is the one who can stand there and say, like Enos, you know, and I love that story of Enos where he he has his sins forgiven and he, he stands there in his meekness and he's like, Lord, how was this done? Because there's a wonder and an awe in that moment. To be meek is to be full of wonder and awe that God has just did has just done what God does. I love this verse. I love this. I love this verse for so many reasons.
0: One of the other parts that I really liked about it is that last part where it says, "Let them be ordained into this power." And we've talked about the the church, the institution of the church as this this. Order that is brought out of out of the of the chaos that we might call individual spiritual experience, and this order that's brought in to create like this collective mode of a religious experience, not as a an end all be all, but just as a way of of bringing gathering right, bringing people together into a collective experience that can be enriched by those individual personal experiences, and so I like here where it's like. Hey, you know somebody that's uh, has desire in their heart and meekness to warn sinners to repentance. Harness that, <laughs> get that, <laughs> bring that into the church. You know we need that. That's the that's the lifeblood of the church. Is is people who have had that pers- deep personal spiritual experience and are truly meek. Bring them in. Let's let's order them within the collective experience of the church so that we can benefit from that as a whole. Right? They're not just this isolated hermit right right <laughs> we we actually the community can benefit from that and and that really to me is kind of the essence of the concept of the church is creating that institution of order not to destroy the the personal spiritual experience which is was really something different but to be enlivened by it and just a point at which we we collectively experience God in a certain way. That's why we have ordinances that are done in a certain way. It doesn't mean that that's the only way you can experience God. The sacrament better not be the only way you experience God. It's just <laughs> a way that we collectively can so that we come together and and can share this experience. But man, that that is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that as an individual, you can then go forth from that or even before that, right? It's, it's not even necessarily a beginning spot. It's just an aspect of a spiritual experience where an individual goes and, and has their own personal spiritual experience.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, moving on here to uh, verse 61 through 63. Yeah. You know, <laughs> 64. <laughs> kind of goes into what well. we we're talking Yeah. Oh, 64. Yeah, you're right. You know, it, wherefore let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. For behold, verily I say, that many there are who be under the condemnation, who use the name of the Lord, and use it in vain, having not authority. Wherefore, let the church repent of their sins, and I the Lord will own them, otherwise they shall be cut off. Remember that which cometh from above is sacred, and must be spoken of with care, and with constraint of the Spirit. And in this there is no condemnation, and ye receive the Spirit through prayer. Wherefore, without this there remaineth condemnation. Well, a lot to unpack there, but mm-hmm. taking the name of the Lord in vain, I'm so glad that we are beginning to talk more and more and more about this as a church culture, that taking the name of the Lord in vain has nothing to do, little or nothing whatsoever to do with using the just an, uh, an exclamation of God in a moment. Yeah, an remember.
0: expletive, sure.
1: An expletive, right? So, taking the name of the Lord in vain has far, far more to do with Claiming that God supports something and is behind something and commands something that God had no intention of ever or desire and that God never supported or promoted to begin with, you know we do this all the time. We we say this about God and we say that about God and and we say all sorts of things in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. We've got to be careful with that. Yeah, and this really goes back to the meekness. Those who have purged themselves and have been meek, who stand there in their meekness, are the ones who are able to talk about the Lord without the ego. They're the ones who, who come in and can talk about repentance because repentance does not become a matter of condemnation. Repentance then becomes a matter of invitation. It's, I've experienced this. Come experience this as well. I've tasted of the fruit. Come taste of the fruit with me. It's not a condemnation for anybody who doesn't. It's a desire that everyone comes and receives. No one is Satan here. No one's accusing anyone of not coming. And that's the difference. The minute you see someone accusing someone of something, you know that <laughs> Satan has entered the mix. Hmm. Because those who have truly tasted the love of God, just like Lehi, they bid others to come. They don't accuse them. They don't belittle them. They don't do anything. The pointing fingers come from the great and spacious building. Those who have truly tasted the love of God, invite. And so whenever we see things done, whenever we have any kind of call to repentance, whenever we have any kind of chastising, you know, chastening, you know, a lot of the times we chasten each other and and we we come and we, you know, the Lord loveth who he chastiseth, or he chasteneth, right? And we take this as a license to then belittle or to condemn our fellow man in their sin. Uh uh. That's not how it works. It's the meek who have the ability of being able to call repentance because they call with an invitation to partake of the love of God. You know, we talked about this when we talked about Oliver Cowdery and, the, and that section with John the Baptist that I was so excited about. Because when we talked about authority, authority in the 1820, in, in Webster's uh, 1820, 1828 dictionary, he talks about authority in three ways. Now, the way that we talk about priesthood authority now is really in the first way that it happens, in that. it's a legal authority. Is the first way that we talk about authority, but it was the third way that he talks about it there. As one who has experienced something and now can testify of the experience is an authority, right? And so here we talk about those who have authority, right? Who have the power, who have the authority. So wherefore let all men beware how they take the name of the lips. Behold, I say unto you, many there are who are under this condemnation who use the name of the God and use it in vain, having not authority.
0: Having not experience.
1: That's right. They haven't experienced the love of God, and yet they are calling condemnation on everyone. They are literally acting in the way of Satan. That has become one of the, the first tools I've been able to find in recognizing God versus that esoteric Satan. Is that the minute someone accuses someone else, they are not standing under the fruit of the tree of life. They are not partaking of the fruit. They are not looking overhead and seeing it in its glory and then partaking it to themselves and then bidding others to come unto it. It is a finger-pointing and it's a mocking. Now, I've done this a lot in my life. <laughs> I, I'm a prime example of this. Now, I, I say this with all sorts, of, all sorts of realization that I've done this, like on social media, all over the place. You can't help but be involved in politics as I have way back in my life and not have done this. It's just the way it works. It's the way the world works. But the minute we try to use and invoke the name of God into something in which we are not inviting because we've tasted the love of God and we are accusing and pointing fingers, we are immediately taking the name of God in vain.
0: And what you just said with accusation and condemnation is basically exactly what verse 64 says here, right? Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by this constraint of the Spirit. And in this, there is no condemnation. In other words, when you receive something sacred from above and you speak it with care by constraint of the Spirit, it's not an act of condemnation. And ye receive the Spirit through prayer. Wherefore, without this, there remaineth condemnation. See, if if we don't speak about those spiritual imperatives, so to speak, by the Spirit and with care, as we talked about in section 50, we talked about how if we don't receive the Spirit, we won't teach. You have to teach by the Spirit. Otherwise, it's not the Word of God. It's not of God. If you don't do it that way, then the way that you're teaching, the way that you're not inviting, right, condemning or accusing, is not of God. I think verse 64 really, really shows that. Well, I, I used to look at that there, and in this, there is no condemnation, a little differently. But I actually see here that he's saying that he's describing how... It is that you speak by the Spirit, and it's with no condemnation when you start condemning. That is by definition not speaking with the Spirit.
1: Yeah, and, and juxtaposing that with sixty-two, that those who are who speak condemnation, who are under condemnation.
0: Yeah, well, and that just bears out like that that whole perception concept, you know, that epistemic reality that we live in in terms of accusation and and. The wicked and the sinner and how we view God, we view these things as condemnatory rather than reconciliatory.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love it. These are some great verses. Well, Ben, you said you lo- really liked the end verse there. Do you want to read that and, uh, and comment on that as we close out?
0: Yeah. These things remain to overcome through patience, that such may receive a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, otherwise a greater condemnation. Amen. There's that word <laughs> condemnation again. But uh, the concept of patience just goes really well here as the Lord is, is through this section constantly seeking to teach the saints and bring them into an understanding of, of who they're to be as a people and relegating the concept of, of this land that they're to inherit and possess as really secondary to the people that they're supposed to be. Or become, or or realize that they are, however we want to to phrase that. And so much of their great anxiety and and even you know eagerness, innocent eagerness, I guess you could say, becomes overbearance and isn't tempered by patience. And so he's you know I, I love this this phrase here, overcome through patience, because so much of our life we. You know the the trials or difficulties that we go through, or or challenges that we face. It's it's like you know there has to be determination to get through these things, and we have to fight for them, right? And 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 this is sort of the the narrative of the you know the the motivational speaker, right? <laughs> you know, fight for your rights and and stand up for it and push on through it. And there's a lot of like uh, self help type of things or or business coaches that are like you know, you get up and you grind, right? And it's every day really pushing it and, and rushing and, and everything's about, about hastiness, right? I, so I just, in, in all of that, I just love this phrase here to overcome through patience. That as we are trying to walk with God and understand his way, the way of Christ, that we realize that there's no, there's no Russian and everything. I, I really like that concept. You you are exactly where you're supposed to be. And so much of our life anxiety, I think, is tied up in this idea, this story that we constantly tell ourselves every day that we're not where we're supposed to be today. You know, we 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 wish we were somewhere else than we are today, either you know figuratively or or literally that that really ignores this, this virtue of patience and that things are overcome by patience, not by, by constant anxiety over the grass is greener, right?
1: Well, I have nothing better to add to that. Well, everyone, thank you for sticking around with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and thank you for sharing with your, with your family and friends and those that you find that would find this as a valuable message. We appreciate all the support. Until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And
0: I'm Ben Peterson.
1: Thank you for listening.